of connection, of hearing the truth, and even hearing what can be challenging teachings, like the teaching of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness or suffering or impermanence, still as a way we connect and know that there's a truth being told here that, that matters to us, that, that has meaning for us, that is important. And then being introduced to this practice of mindfulness, this really simple practice of just knowing our experience. And it, for me, it was like a whole world opened up. And I felt that I discovered a path, that I had found uh, something that would really support me in my understanding and my interest in freedom. But there are other teachings that we might hear and that the Buddha considered essential that may not have that immediate sense of connection, of um, relevance to our practice. Things like dependent origination, this uh, complex teaching on the causes of suffering, really explicating the Four Noble Truths, beginning with ignorance and going through all these steps that we go through again and again and find ourselves back caught up in suffering again and just trapped. The teachings on karma, on, on cause and effect, often challenging for people to understand. And then one that I want to um, speak on tonight, the teaching on the five aggregates, khandas in Pali or skandhas in Sanskrit. First time or many times you hear this teaching might not seem that helpful or relevant. Because many of us come to this practice as practitioners, as yogis. We want to um, come into greater contact with our own experience, and we're not so interested in what might seem esoteric or philosophical or intellectual. But as we continue to practice, and especially on a retreat like this, where we're practicing for many weeks at a time, <laughs> might come to start to see our experience in more subtle ways and begin to see how these teachings, and in particular this one on the khandhas, might be relevant to our practice. And actually almost central to this process that we're in of discovering more and more freedom, more and more ease and contentment and well-being in our lives. So I want to talk tonight about the khandhas, about the aggregates, and keep pointing to how even if you haven't heard this term before, I know many of you have, but perhaps aren't, don't think of something that you look for or think about in your practice, you already are practicing with them. They're really the kind of bedrock of what we do in our practice. We've talked a little bit about the story of the Buddha's life and particularly the night of his enlightenment and the description, what's described as his experience in that night is he opens to dependent origination. This was the cornerstone of his awakening. And also seeing cause and effect, seeing karma. And it's said that after that night of this profound awakening, he stayed in the area of Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree for a number of days, even weeks, just contemplating what he had come to understand, sitting and walking, meditating, and just as they say, in the bliss of deliverance. Uh, 
But the thought came to him to, actually the first thought that came to him was not to teach, but the second thought that came, luckily for us, was to teach. And so he wondered who he would teach, and he thought of these five ascetics that he had been practicing with, and it said with his omniscient eye, realized that they were in Sarnath, which is not far from um, Varanasi. So he set out to walk there. It's about 200 miles. So he had a lot more time to contemplate what he had understood. And as I think I said in my first talk, I've just come from a pilgrimage to India where I really got a sense of what that must have been like. Because India hasn't changed that much in the rural areas. Big cities, yes, and of course it's changed. You know, everyone has a cell phone now, almost, it seems. But what he, the, the countryside that he walked through is very much what it might, might still be like today. And I can just imagine him, as he sets out on this journey, having had this profound experience, and with this awakened mind, looking at all of the other people and beings that he met on this journey, because everyone walked in those days. It wasn't like he was being, you know, pushed, uh, big rigs driving by, or, you know, people blaring by at 50 miles an hour. Everyone walked, or at the most, they're on a bullock cart, you know. Really, if you were elevated, were a king, you had an elephant. But everyone was out there on the paths and the, on the s streets walking. So he wouldn't have been alone in this journey. And of course, he had to get food, so he would have had to have interaction with the villagers. And he had just imagined this awakened mind looking at all the people he met and getting a sense of what was the difference between his mind and theirs. What, what made the difference between this awakened mind and these people who he saw were in confusion and doing, in their search for happiness, doing exactly what would bring them suffering. The only record we have of a conversation um, during that journey is when the Buddha met another mendicant called Upaka. And this is, this is what he said happened. Upaka saw him coming and said, Who are you, friend? Your face is so clear and bright. Your, your manner is awesome and serene. Surely you must have discovered some great truth. Who is your teacher, friend? And what is it that you have discovered? The newly awakened Buddha replied, I am an all-transcender, an all-knower. I have no teacher. In all the world, I alone am fully enlightened. There is none who taught me this. I came to it through my own efforts. And Upaka says, do you mean to say that you claim to have won victory over birth and death? Indeed, friend, I am a victorious one. And now in this world of, spirit, of the spiritually blind, I go to Varanasi to beat the drum of the deathless. Quite a bold set of statements there. <laughs> and I don't know how you took them, but Friend Upaka said, well, good for you, friend. <laughs> Shook his head and went off on another path. <laughs> it's just such a great image of the Buddha in this, you know, ecstatic, kind of wanting to share what happened. And this guy just goes, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> and goes off the other way. So it said, you know, the Buddha obviously learnt from that, continued his journey reflecting, when he arrived at, the, um, at Sarnath, the deer park, where the five ascetics were, were, were practicing, first they um, disowned him because they said, oh, 
Siddhartha Gautama, he's fallen off the path. He's eating rice and, you know, he's put on some weight. I mean, he wasn't skeletal anymore because he'd been so um, uh, starving himself prior to that. But he sat down and uh, taught, and the first thing he taught was the Four Noble Truths. That's why it's considered the cornerstone of his teaching. And we've talked quite a bit about the truths of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And it said from that talk of the five ascetics, one became a stream mantra. Kondanya, this famous line, Kondanya knows. So it was quite profound, this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. But the second talk that the Buddha gave, and again, there's not a lot of filler in these texts. We don't know how many days or what happened, but the second talk that he gave was a talk on the characteristic of not-self through the schema of the aggregates, where he just laid out this clear seeing that he had of how the khandas, the aggregates arise, and in clinging to them we suffer. If we see through that dynamic, we can let go and find freedom. Out of that talk, all five became fully enlightened. And it was said, and there were now six arhants, fully awakened beings in the world. So listen closely. (laughs) That was what did it for them. And, uh, you know, I lo- I'm, I'm really feeling into this the time of the Buddha because I was there and, and just meeting a, a lot of um, Indian people. They're such philosophers to this day. And in the time of the Buddha, it was like that too. So he did spend a lot of time debating with people about different views. But he never went too far with that because he saw the limitation of views. And what he was interested in was our direct experience, why we suffer how to find freedom. Looking uh, with this, through this lens, you could say, of the meditator, of this direct knowing of experience, not intellectual, not philosophical, but what the actuality is, seeing things how they are. And what he would see again and again was the conditioned nature of experience. The three characteristics that we've talked about of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. And what he kept coming back to was there are five rivers, you could say, ways of experience, processes almost, that he saw again and again we get identified with, cling to, try to control, and that actually ultimately causes suffering create this sense of self, this sense of I, me, or mine, create a whole world of views and opinions, and causes suffering out of that. He called these the khandas, these five types of experience, these five ways of seeing. But what's important to remember is they're processes. They're not things. They're, they're, they're in flux themselves. They're conditioned experiences, conditioned arisings, but it's through looking to see how they're manifesting and how we're relating to it that we can see clearly where we're getting caught and why we can suffer and where freedom is to be found. Now the Buddha was known for using colloquial language, used a lot of nature imagery, farming imagery, even 
um, warrior type in imagery because he was of the warrior caste to explain his teachings because he wanted them to be understood. There's this famous line, once he'd gathered a number of followers and, and had a number of practitioners who'd awakened, he told them to disperse and, and teach for the welfare of the many folk in the idiom of the people so that people could understand the teachings. And so this word kanda was a very commonplace term in his time. It meant heap or pile, kind of a, a constructed thing. We usually translate it as aggregate, and um, it's an unfortunate term, but um, it is actually the closest translation. But the very word is kind of off-putting, because it sounds like a technical term. It sounds like a, well, it is a geological term that, that refers to uh, certain types of rocks and mineral that are compressed together that look like rock but actually aren't. Or it's a building material. It's a statistical term. It's a, it's a, a term they use in, in um, politics and in computer science. It, it's used for a lot of things. But what it, it's, the essence of it is, a bunch of stuff put together to make more stuff. That's basically <laughs> what the F essence of uh, aggregate is. In the Buddha's time, as I said, this would have been a very commonplace phrase. And that you, what I'm told is they would talk about a kanda of sticks or twigs or, or bricks or something. And in the, the things that I commonly hear referred to as, as put together as a kanda, they usually, they seem to be construction materials. They're things that we often have to carry around and we make things out of them. And they're, their essence is they're very awkward to carry. Bricks or twigs or stalks or sticks. You kind of have to bundle them up. And again, being in India, you'd see this. You'd see this thing coming towards you and it would take a while to figure out that it was someone carrying this enormous, and you don't even know how they tied it together, bundle of stalks or twigs of some kind of material. Or, you know, and often it was women carrying these, these it was just like kerchiefs of bricks. They were just kind of tied together, carried on their heads, or these bullock carts, and you could barely see the, the bullock, let alone the cart, under this heap of things. The Buddha would have seen these same things same things, I'm sure. It hasn't changed that much. And he saw that this was what we do with this sense of self. We take this bunch of stuff and we tie it all together and we carry it around in this awkward way. This is what the khandas are referring to. So what are these five khandas? And remember that the, the khandas come together and kind of make a bigger khanda, but each one, each aggregate in and of itself is made up of a lot of different stuff. So the first one is form. And it refers to everything in the material realm. Inner and outer, past, present, and future, human and not human, everything. The next one is uh, the khanda of vedna, or feeling tone. <coughs> Again, we've talked about this, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Third one is perception, or sanya. And it's this very simple act or, or, or movement of knowing or naming things, recognition. 
The fourth is a little more complex sankharas or mental formations, and it's basically everything in our mental realm. Thoughts, moods, emotions, planning, remembering, um, all of our habitual tendencies of mind, all occur in this sankhara, in this khanda of sankharas. And then the fifth one, the last one, is the most subtle, and that's the sankhara of consciousness. In this, the Pali is vijnana, and it's the simplest definition of consciousness. It's this actor, this faculty of knowing, the consciousness that arises at each of the sense doors and knows the object of sight, of sound, of hearing, of taste, of touch, even of the mind. It's what knows, different from the object that it's knowing. So I hope just from that brief description, you can see how this is the field of our meditation. The first, the two of them are what you're working with all the time, mind and body. And as many of you are reporting in your interviews, seeing how out of that you create a sense of self, seeing how you get caught and struggle and try to control and manipulate and identify with. This is what we do in our practice. A little more subtle is to see, yes, there's the body and the mind, and then there's this knowing that's happening that is somehow separate, even from the mind and the contents of the mind. It's what knows the thinking, knows the emotion. More subtle again, and it's interesting to see how, I mean, the Buddha just could have said, well, we identify with mind and body. In some ways, that's almost enough for us to recognize, and we can learn a great deal from that. But he separated at these three aspects of mind. A Vedana feeling tone, Sanya perception, and then Sankara's, kind of everything else. And there's a way in which, and in many other lists, Vedana and Sanya are Sankara's. They are part of the mental realm, yet the Buddha thought they were important enough to tease them out. And so this, this is uh, significant, and we'll mention this and, and encourage you to look at this. But why did he think that they were important enough to tease out from what could be just the three of body, mind, and consciousness? Whenever the Buddha talked about khandas, he, it's very rare that he didn't refer to them without saying or adding or calling them upadana, upadana khand, upadana khanda. And this is the khanda of clinging, aggregate of clinging, the, 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 the aggregates affected by clinging. So what he's pointing to in saying this is that the aggregates are just kind of happening. It's the identification and the clinging to them that is the problem. And it's where we most commonly identify, create a sense of self, and out of that we crave. And in craving, as you know, it also includes the pushing away. The Buddha even said, so long as I did not understand the five aggregates in terms of their individual nature, their arising, their cessation, and the way to their cessation, I did not claim to have attained perfect enlightenment. So he really held it to be central, how they're created, how they're maintained, 
and how they are deconstructed, how they cease. Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great scholar of the Buddha's teachings, says that we cling to the fi- that clinging to the five aggregates occurs in two principal modes, what we might call appropriation and identification. One either grasps them and takes possession of them, that is, one appropriates them as mine, as me, or one sees them as a basis for views about oneself and brings us into this whole world of judging and comparing. I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm the same as. This is the whole realm of what is often called uh, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. And it's helpful to look at how we do one or the other of those with each of the five of these khandhas. How we, identi- we, we grasp them, hold on to them and identify, or we use them in this realm of views and opinions, particularly views and opinions about ourselves. So the first of these aggregates is this very simple and obvious one of rupa, form, the form aggregate. And the Buddha has these descriptions where he's just pointing to it includes everything, internal, external, um, past, present, future, gross or subtle, um, all of the, the, the matter of the world. You know, and the common definition of form is the four great elements of earth, air, fire, and water. This is the constituent, the, you know, what, what some of the stuff that makes up the aggregate of form. And it's important to remember that all sights and sounds, smells, tastes, and touch, everything of the five senses is also in this world of form and places where we can identify and cling. But for us as meditators, the realm of form in its most important um, manifestation is that of the body and our relationship to the body because we, like all human beings, I, uh, this is one of the places we most identify with as being me. And it's kind of understandable that we do that. You know, this is the body we've grown up with. And you know, if someone says, hey, Sally, I go, yes, that's me. And people recognize me. Oh, yes, that's Sally. There's a lot of um, affirmation of this identification with this process of Sally as being this body you know, and how it looks. Uh, you probably know that little short story of Mullah Nasruddin, that, that Sufi um, mystic and, and uh, trickster, where he goes to the bank to withdraw some money, and the teller says, well, first you need to identify yourself. And so he gets out a mirror and goes, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> and that's what we do again and again and again. Every time we look in the mirror, yep. That's me, all right. This is who I am. This external experience is me. And out of that sense of ownership, all kinds of other views happen. If it's me, I should be able to control it. It should conform to some idea I have about the body. And yet, look at your direct experience of the body and how much of it is very clearly out of your control. Can you control how tall you are or the size of your feet 
or you know the the shape of anything in your body. I mean, there are some ways we can control some things, but the basics of it. What can you do about that? Yet we take it so personally and have such a view about how it's bad, you know, usually for most of us, bad or wrong, whatever. You know, if our hair is straight, we want it curly. If it's thick, we want it thin. If it's, you know, all of that stuff that we do and obsess around the body. And of course, these days, unfortunately, we can change a lot about the body. I mean, it's kind of amazing what they can do literally to the body. I mean, yes, you can, you know, the, you can change the color of your hair. That's, that's, kind, that's kind of simple these days. That's the least of it. All of the other stuff that they do around the body. And because of that, there's such distorted views about the reality of the body and what a body should look like. I was listening just the other day to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is one of the programs I love. I get a lot of my news information from there. It's a humor <laughs> program where they, they do a lot with word play, but the making fun of the news of the day. And they often have a limerick where the person has to guess what the last word is. And the theme was about um, families, and this limerick was about weddings. And it said, it was a limerick about bridesmaids, and it was something about brides and bridesmaids and a request. And da 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 And the person had to guess, you know, get this uh, matching something. And the woman said, dress. Well, he said, no, I mean, that's pretty obvious. The bridesmaids have matching dresses. Rhymes with, rhymes with request. What's in now is matching breasts. That their bridesmaids will all get similar breast augmentation, so they'll all look the same. I mean, it just boggles the mind what people are doing with this. And of course, you know, Hollywood and the fashion um, business have so taken this and distorted it. I mean, you know, their ideal to me looks like walking skeletons. You know, if you if you have an ounce of flesh, you're overweight. This is this is what their idea is, and this has gotten so um, ridiculous that, especially through photoshopping and what they do to bodies, they literally make in this obsession with what their ideal of beauty is. They're making the bodies not human anymore. They're literally taking away the curves. Of course, they're taking away the wrinkles and the sagginess and the bagginess, but they're literally making them not human. And I've read descriptions of what they do in that Photoshop. Oh, yeah, I took away the hip and, you know, the shoulder was this, so I took that away. And it came to a crux just a little while ago. I read about this, a whole thing, about this Ralph Lauren ad, maybe you saw it, where they took this young woman. I should get a, the image. I should get a copy of it. I don't have it. Um, a young, beautiful woman, by any standards thin, and they photoshopped her in so much, she looked like an alien. I mean, she didn't look like it was possible to w walk around in that body. And this was their definition of beauty. So it's just interesting, this distortion in, 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 in um, this obsession with the body, they're actually denying the reality of the body. And of course they're denying the real reality, which is the body is kind of messy and smelly and wrinkly and, you know, all of that stuff that the body is. And that they don't want to know. It's, it's just this distorted view. And this 
you know, this is what we're fed. So it's understandable that we buy into that a little bit. I mean, I see it in myself, even as I try to have a realistic and healthy relationship to the body. You know, I'm, I'm relatively strong, and my body usually does what I want it to do, and I exercise a lot. And if something's not working right, I just saw it the other day, my wrist was aching a little. It's like, hmm, what's wrong with that? It shouldn't be doing that. What did I do wrong? How can I fix it? And I don't, it's just the wrist, you know, aching a bit. And, you know, I've got news for you. This is the only direction that it's going, you know, <laughs> is more and more aches and decrepitude. Not just me, please, all of us. This is the nature of the body. You're sure there's this brief arc of growth, but it doesn't, it's not very long before it's on that long downhill. This is the nature of the body. Yet we think it shouldn't happen. It should be like what? Like some idea we have about it. And then what is it we're at, you know, what if we're saying, what's wrong with the body? Well, is it the body or is it me? How are we relating to this? To really look at when we say things like that, what is it we're actually relating to? Is it me or is it the body? Am, am I the body or am I separate from the body? Do I own the body? Am I in the body? To really get kind of curious about how we relate to that. Because, I mean, just the simple thing that we often talk about as we talk about the body is, so yes, you know, you say, oh, this is me, this body. Well, is it the same body that you started this retreat with? I mean, kind of, you know, if you look in the mirror, I hadn't changed that, maybe. Well, what about a year ago or five years ago? Is it the same body you had 10 years ago? I don't think it is. 20 years ago, you definitely say, oh, that's a, that's a different person, you know? You look at a photo. Guy sent, my husband sent me a photo of us back in England like 20 years ago. It's like, who are those people in that? You know, they're so young and youthful looking. <laughs> who are those people? What is it we're referring to as this thing that's me in this process of body, to get a little curious about that. I mean, they say that every seven years, every single cell in your body has turned over, is a new cell. Of course, it's all put back together in the same wrinkly old way, but (laughs) it's a different set of wrinkles. This is the right way of things. So when we start to look this way, we see we don't own the body. We don't control it. It's going to operate according to the laws of nature, the laws of nature in this body. And whatever suffering we have around that is not the body's fault. It's our unwise relationship to this manifestation of body. So what is a wise relationship? We need the body, obviously. And we need the body to be as healthy and as comfortable as we can make it, given the conditions. And, you know, that's going to change day by day, depending on all the sorts of things that go on for us. But it is our vehicle for awakening. As the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is everything we need to know to come to awakening. So to find this wise relationship to the body, where there's appreciation of just this manifestation of the human form, but it doesn't grasp onto it, doesn't identify with it, doesn't look to it as a form of lasting happiness or satisfaction. 
because it can't be found in this changing set of khanda that is the rupa, the human body. And it's not me and it's not mine. It just is what it is. This we can kind of get, though, I think. I mean, I think it doesn't take much to see, you know, how we can get a distorted relationship to the body. And, you know, if we wanted to control it, we're just going to suffer. It'll do what it does. And, the, you know, the other khandas get a little more subtle. So this khanda of Vedana, of feeling tone. Now, we've talked about this. We've encouraged you using it in your practice to see how in our relationship, to experiences pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We move into craving if it's pleasant, pushing away, aversion if it's unpleasant, or we're in delusion, ignorance, spacing out if it's a neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And again, I think that we can kind of get and see how we can create suffering or find freedom in that way. But in including it as a khanda, I think the Buddha was also pointing to something a little more subtle in this process of Vedana. He's talking, pointing to or encouraging us to look and see how we get identified, create a sense of self around this process, this conditioned arising of Vedana. And it's interesting, once you start to look to see how we do this, how we create a sense of self around our likes and dislikes. And we not only create often a sense of self, we tend to glom together with other people who share the same likes and dislikes. It what, what makes all the kind of cultural movements. I mean, there's a way in which we're all aggregated here together because we find meditation, I was going to say pleasant, um, helpful, <laughs> pleasant uh, at times. You know, we do that. Uh, you know, and, and just to see all the ways people um, relate to others in that way, where we push away those that don't, don't share our view of the world, and, and we, we group together the, with those we do. Uh, you know, one of the things I saw was so classic. I don't even know if it's still popular, but the goth kind of look which I, I take, you know, a little dark look. There's often, they're dressed in black with black makeup or black hair. It's like it's such a rebellious thing to do, but then when they're all together, it's like they're all exactly the you know, rebelling in the same way. And of course, you know, we all did this in our youth, whatever way we rebelled. I'm sure our parents thought the same thing about the hippies or the punks or whatever. But that's how we take, create an identification around what's pleasant, what we like and we push away what we don't like. So again, it's a way we identify. It's a way we build a sense of self out of this affect of Vedana, of feeling tone. So it's important to see this as another conditioned arising. That Vedana is not an absolute reality. It's a conditioned experience that's very different from one person to another, or probably, as you've seen in your practice, can even be for you from one moment to another. Something that was pleasant becomes unpleasant. Something that was unpleasant, we find we can bear it, we get curious about it, becomes pleasant. So we start to see it's not, it's not a solid thing. It's a changeable condition arising. 
And if we want to hold on to it, if we identify around it, make it a solid, want it to be a solid permanent thing, we are going to suffer. It's a conditioned arising. It's in flux, like all of the other aggregates. Now, the third of the aggregates, I actually find in some ways the most interesting, sanya or perception. Again, why the Buddha singled this out as a place that we get caught and, and um, arouse clinging around. Kanda, upadana kanda of perception, of sanya. Now, perception uh, at one level is just very simple. It's just this knowing, bell, clock, glass, platform, floor. And mostly what we think is that we all share, you know, person, and even, you know, naming, you know, Julie or Bob. It's just this immediate, spontaneous recognition. It's so immediate and spontaneous, we don't know that we're even doing it most of the time. We don't say the words out loud, that recognition of knowing is just there. But what I think the Buddha is pointing towards in this process is that we're actually choosing all the time what we're noticing. This is where it gets interesting, that we're filtering all the time, and this recognition is actually shaping our experience and again, creating this identity or view of the world and ourselves in the world. A you know, simple example, you probably had this, you know, when things are going well and you're happy, doesn't everyone look kind of pleasant and appealing and the food tastes great and the weather's, whatever it is, it's perfect for practice? And then when you're a little grumpy, when things aren't going well, and you know, when you're happy, even the annoying person is just kind of cute. They're not really <laughs> annoying. But when you're aversive, doesn't everyone look kind of glum and depressed and the weather's heavy and oppressive and the food could be better? This is the process of sanya or perception, operating as this filter that's both affecting what we notice but also affecting how we notice it, changing the actual perception. It's so hard to notice that we're doing this. It's so automatic or immediate. But we can start to see it through meditation as our mind quietens down, or any time we have this experience when we see, or, and I'm using the term see, this can happen obviously at any of the sense doors, experience something we don't recognize. I saw this very clearly um, a little while ago. I went into a, a Chinese restaurant and at the back, far back table, you know, one of those big round tables, there was a pile of things, and I knew they were green, but that's all I could see. And it was just such a disorienting experience. I just had to, what is that? It filled this entire table to a height of about three feet. And I had to look, and I couldn't look away. I needed to, what is that? It's so rare that we don't immediately recognize what something is. And as I got a bit closer, I saw it was these really long green beans. You know, they're almost a, a number of feet long, piled up really high. And just to see when we don't recognize something, the brain, it, it goes, it, it sort of is on the fritz. It's like, what is that? 
this is pointing to the power and the, and the ubiquity of this uh, perception that's happening all the time. Someone this morning in an interview, as we were talking about this, was saying she had a similar experience where someone, she was out hiking, and someone said, look at all the asparagus. And she said, what, where? And they said, there. And she was, what are you talking about? What, uh, you know, I don't see any asparagus. And they said, there, everywhere, green. And it wasn't until she got close and she could hold, oh, that's asparagus. And it was, you know, the frilly ferns of asparagus. That's asparagus. Now I know it, I see it, but when they were pointing to it, I couldn't see it because there was no perception, no naming that could recognize what that was. And maybe in your meditation you've had this experience where, you know, in this deepening of sitting and the stillness and there's just the sense doors and knowing things as they arise and pass, and then you open your eyes and it's like the world isn't quite the same. You almost see how you construct the world out of shape and form. I'm sorry, color and form. See it coming together and even feel almost physically how you reconstruct a sense of self that wasn't there a moment ago. So just start to play with this. This quality of perception, the importance of perception was um, highlighted for me in a little vignette from Oliver Sacks, you know, that famous neurologist, you probably read this story, about a man who um, went blind in early childhood. So he did see for a little bit, the first few years of his life, lost his sight, and in his 40s or 50s, they realized that there, could, there was an operation that could restore his sight. So it describes this whole process, the operation, and the moment when they take the bandages off his eyes. And everyone was clustered around his bed, expecting that, you know, you take the bandages off, and he'd go, Eureka, I can see. Wasn't what happened. The first moment, he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up all meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice that said, well? Then and only then did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. He couldn't put it together, and in fact never quite got it together in the same way that we see and perceive things. As Virgil explored the rooms of his house, investigating, so to speak, the visual construction of the world, Oliver Sacks was reminded of an infant moving his hand to and fro before his eyes, waggling his head, turning this way and that, in his primal construction of the world. Most of us have no sense of the immensity of this construction, for we perform it seamlessly, unconsciously, thousands of times a day at a glance. But this is not so for a baby. It was not so for Virgil. We learn this process of perception. We've learned this naming. So it's so Im immediate, we don't know even that it's happening. But through our meditation, we can start to disentangle this process and start to see what happens as we perceive in certain ways, through this choice about what we notice, through this filtering that notices 
what feeds or serves or, or supports our view of ourself or the world and can start to bring a little more clarity to this, to see it's not the things out there that are causing us suffering or making us crave or cling. It's how we're relating to them. And it's a process that we actually have more, um, can bring more clarity around than we perhaps thought possible. And you can even notice how on retreats things get brighter and clearer, don't they? You literally see more clearly. As I say, the doors of perception start to open. And so we can just begin to pay more attention to this very process itself and notice how the naming of things can bring us into this clinging, this sense of self. And you could do a whole talk about perception and, and the possibility of even changing perception to see things more truly, more clearly, or to incline the mind. We see perceptions that lead us, as I said, when we're averse, we see how it can lead us into pushing away and grumpiness and irritability, that we can change the perception. James was talking last night about seeing the goodness in ourselves, seeing the goodness in others, and then that's what we tend to perceive. That's what we tend to open to. Just getting more refined, more aware of these processes. The fourth of the aggregates of that is that of sankharas or mental formations. I'm not going to speak a lot about it because we have spoken a lot about how we get identified, how we cling to our thoughts, our feelings, our moods, our emotions, how we, we when they're, you know, when they're, when they're difficult, we see them as permanent, as solid, I'll always be like that. When they're beautiful or happy, we want to hold on and make them last. This is, this is very much, as I said, the field of our meditation practice and where we're often working. But just to point to those moments I know you've all had, when this aggregate isn't so active, when the mind isn't so full with thoughts of me and my and mine, when the chatter stops a little bit, and a few of you said, oh, it's such a relief, when we're actually in that experience, just being, not being someone. This is what can happen when we start to practice and bring a more skillful relationship to this aggregate of mental formations. The last of the aggregates is in some ways the most subtle, and again, interesting that the Buddha included it in this field of clinging the aggregate of consciousness itself, vijnana. Again, in this, in this um, aspect of experience, vijnana is just the knowing of arisings at any of the six sense doors. So when there's a, there's a bell, that's the, the, the object of form, there's an eye, and then there's the eye consciousness that knows bell, shape, this round, brown thing. That's this experience of consciousness. And it's in our meditation practice, it's a turning the focus away from out there, the object, even if it's in the body, to the mental aspect of that. So it's a subtle shifting of perspective from the object and our tendency to grasp 
at objects or push away objects to the knowing of the object. And it's not something we certainly don't do much in our daily lives. We often don't do it that much in our meditation, but usually when we first have an experience of this or we do it on a more regular basis, it's like cool. You know, it's just this dropping of this sense of grasping and holding and engaging to just this bare knowing, to see that that's another place of a subtle experience. But what the Buddha pointed to is we can also land there and think, well, I know I'm not the objects. I know I'm not, you know, my body or the sight or the smell. But he's also saying, not the knowing, that the knowing is also arising and passing. The knowing is also conditioned. It gets subtle at this level. So how do we practice with the khandhas? You don't have to memorize this list. You don't have to practice with them at all if it's not a a way of looking at your experience that's helpful. But hopefully you've seen that you are already. You're seeing, just just as the Buddha did, he looked at his experience, this is what we notice. Some of them are a little more subtle than others, but all of them I think you've connected to in some way or another. Simply, you know, awareness of the body and the mind and how we tend to cling and create a sense of self. Adding in the feeling tone, seeing how that creates clinging and identification. Perception and the subtleties of knowing and naming and recognizing. And then all of them, just seeing the conditioned impersonal nature. Really important to remember that what the Buddha was always pointing to is this, in this is that there's no solid self to be found. He never said there's no self. He refused to answer that question when pushed. He not to say there is a self, not to say there's no self. What he said was there is no solid separate entity separate from this flow of experience, separate from this arising and passing of all of the aggregates. He never denied this relative sense of self that Sally or Joe or Mary that has our own set of conditioning and memories and, and uh, all of that relative sense of experience that we take to be this solid thing. It doesn't deny that. It just says, look more closely. See what's actually happening here. How there's actually nothing solid, but just the aggregates arising and passing. And we can know that, you know, in those moments where there's just the being in direct experience. There's this sense of freedom in that. We're not old or young, male or female, you know, limited or unlimited. There's just this knowing, this recognition of experience. I've been recently um, reading a biography of Andre Agassi. My husband and I are both tennis players. We like to play and watch tennis. And Andre Agassi was one of the major figures of especially the last uh, decade or two of tennis. And when he came on the tennis scene, he was such a kind of, it seemed, a breath of fresh air. And 
you know, there were, he, he was so remarkable for many things. He had long blonde hair and he was always, it seemed like a rebel and he was wearing loud clothing and tennis was such a conservative sport where everyone wore white and baggy clothes and short hair and he was the opposite of everything that was traditional in tennis and he was, you know, making tons of money and he seemed very athletic and powerful and strong and, and high-spirited and, and just this free spirit that was just, as I said, this breath of fresh air. Reading his biography, it's painful to see how his inner experience was the opposite of everything that was our perception of him. The long blonde hair, he went bald, at an, uh, was going bald at an early age and for a long time wore wigs and hair pieces because he was so identified with his hair. And it wasn't until his girlfriend said, shave it all off. He used to wear hats and wigs, I mean, and bandanas. The hair was fake. He said, being a rebel, he said, I was just trying to fit in, and it was actually by pushing the world away that I felt safe. This sense of bravado, he was always operating from this place of fear and insecurity. And the real kicker was he always hated tennis. <laughs> he hated tennis with a passion. And he kept telling people he hated tennis, and no one would believe him. He did it all out of pr first pressure from his father, but he bought into that pressure and identified with it and lived so many years of his life out of this false sense of self that was only a source of suffering, but he knew no other way to live. He got married out of that false sense of self, all the time questioning and, and fearful and, and, and completely contracted. It's just painful, painful to read. And just so amazing that everything we perceived about him was wrong and was not his felt experience. Yet this is what we do again and again and again if we hold on to and identify with any aspect of our experience. It's all in flux. It's all impermanent. It's all changing. And freedom happens when we come in alignment with that truth. It doesn't mean anything disappears. Nothing actually changes. There's nothing solid there to begin with. So how can it disappear? You know, it's not like some big void that opens up and we fall through the hole in the floor. What changes is our relationship to this experience. That's what makes the difference. And that can happen in a moment when we see clearly through this veil of clinging, this veil of identification. I want to finish with, it's a, it's a long uh, uh, enlightenment poem from Ajahn Mun, who was a very famous, powerful, fierce Thai forest meditation master from the last century, called The Ballad of Liberation from the Khandas. I will now give a brief exposition of the Dhamma Khandas. And he's talking about himself in this. Once there was a man who loved himself and feared distress. He wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger, so he wandered endlessly Wherever people said that happiness was found, he longed to go, to go. But wandering took a long, long time. 
He was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. You relating to this? He truly wanted release from aging immortality. Then one day he came to know the truth, abandoning the cause of suffering and compounded things. He found a cave of wonders, of endless happiness, his body. As he gazed throughout the cave of wonders, his suffering was destroyed, his fears appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. The heart, knowing the Dhamma of ultimate ease, sees for sure that the khandhas are always stressful. The Dhamma stays as the Dhamma. The khandhas stay as the khandhas, that is all. Before, I used to think that the sanyas were the heart, labeling inner and outer, which was why I was fooled. Now the heart is knowing. Now the heart is in charge with, its, with no concerns, no hopes of relying on any perception at all. Whatever arises passes away. There's no need to be possessive of sanya or try to prevent them. When the heart sees its own decayings, it's released from darkness. It loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It stops searching for things within and without. Its attachments fall away. It leaves its loves and hates. Whatever weighs it down, it can end its desires. Its sorrows all vanish together with the weighty cares that made it moan. As if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart, the cool heart is realized by the heart itself. The heart is cool for it has no need to wander about looking at people. Knowing the mind source in the present, it's unshakable and unconcerned with any good and evil, for they must pass away with all other impediments. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its, only af- its own affairs, no expectations, no need to be entangled or troubled no need to keep up its guard, sitting or lying down, one thinks at the source mind released. So let's just sit together for a moment. It stops searching for things within and without. Its attachments all fall away. It leaves its loves and hates, whatever weighs it down. It can end its desires, its sorrows all vanish, together with the weighty cares that made it moan, as if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.